You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris, and as always, I'm the only one here. Wait a second. What, Wait a what second. do you mean? What hey, what? now. Hey. What's... What? Is that a transdimensional <laughs> portal opening <laughs> up from another universe and other podcasters from BGA are porting in? We have heard your call, Chris. Woohoo! It worked. <laughs> My thanks for everyone who visited Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, Patreon, our guild. We got the gang back together. Oh, yeah. Boys are back in town. We can't afford the rights to this song, so we'll probably have to cut it. Uh. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We actually have an extra special podcast. First off, we got everyone back. And then second, what we wanted to do with this week's episode was a little bit different than our usual recording schedule is that we wanted to give you, in a way, episode zero, a full background on each of the podcasters that you listen to each and every week, so that if you're a longtime listener, you'll, you'll get to know about our likes, our dislikes, our personal histories, what we love about gaming, what we love about podcasting. And if you're a new listener and you're just joining us, it'll bring you right up to speed on what we're currently doing, what we've done previously, and what we hope to do in the future. So we're really glad to have you all join us here this week. So as always, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And once again, welcome to the podcast. So first off, guys, BGA. Now, this is a podcast a long time in coming. We're all friends. We're all fellow board gamers. This started back with Anthony and I as the original founders putting together a podcast in part because we love board gaming and we loved everyone coming to the table and joining us for such a great social experience. When we first started out, it was such a big idea. It was such a big project. And, you know, we were just four board gamers from Staten Island, New York, one of the five boroughs, usually the kind of hidden borough. And we were going to Myriad Games in Staten Island, which was our board game store slash get-together and part of the Staten Island Board Gamers Meetup. And we all met there, and I at some point became one of the organizers and myself and Anthony would talk about board games and all the minutia and everything about the industry and what made a great board game and all the different mechanics and aspects to it and it grew out of that love for board gaming that we wanted to share with so many people and being part of New York City is this just endless number of different people of different backgrounds ages cultures and coming in and sharing an experience it's just such a different thing and i think i could speak for everybody on some levels like we were video gamers we played a lot of video games and you know the board game experience really does bring so many people together so you know in order to bring a larger group to the table we felt like a podcast would be a great way to share our experiences and bring new people into gaming and hopefully to our table we really do want you to join us at the table each and every week whether it's on the podcast but even more importantly we really do want you to join us at the table because it's such a great experience to share a board game with somebody and figure out the strategies the tactics and everything that comes along with it and 
while this was something that Anthony and I started, we had a, a number of different guest hosts over the time and then got extremely, extremely fortunate. And, you know, myself and Anthony, we first met Drew. And we the first game we've talked about this previously, we played Revolution. Yeah. The Philip DeBerry game. Love that game. Um, I owned it at one time. Uh, I've, I've told this, the tale many times. But I, I love teaching people the game. Um, not so much for the bidding aspect, which is extremely frustrating because I always get out bid on bidding for characters. But the, the worker placement and the area control, and I love that game. So it was always a lot of fun to, to interact with other people with it. I enjoyed teaching it. And I'm glad I taught it to you guys. Yeah, and I met Drew some a little bit before the store opened. We were actually a board game group, standalone board gamers at Panera Bread. And I just remember Drew coming in, I think, late on a Sunday, and we were playing Innovation. And mm. it's not, it's, in my personal opinion, maybe it was not taught correctly or the fact that we had so many people playing. But it was <laughs> such a tremendously grind of a game. It was just so incredibly painful. And then I remember Drew particularly because Drew played the, I guess it was a new card where he just wiped everybody else back to the Stone Age. Blew up the board. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much Drew's gameplay. He's like, you know what? We're all, we're all going together, man. I'm, I'm taking you well, all with me. Well, you know, some people flip the table, and I, that's crude. I just play the new card, and it's the same thing. <laughs> and I appreciate that, Drew, because I was way, way, way in last place in that game. It was the first time I ever played it, and you nuked us back, which was fine, because <laughs> I was in a Stone Age to begin with, so it was fine by me. <laughs> no, I, I love that. When, when you're going nowhere and you have no possibility of winning or doing anything productive, yeah, just end the game. Come just on. end the game. <laughs> And then a little bit later on, I got a chance to meet Daniel. Daniel was coming to the Staten Island Board Gamers Meetup at Myriad Games, and he was trying to be very coy and, and just very respectful and not try to get in one's way. And I would not let that happen, and I dragged Daniel into a game, and then Daniel and I became friends. Uh, yeah, I went down to Myriad Games and pretended like I had no idea that the Staten Island Board Gamer Group was meeting there, despite the fact I had been a member on Meetup for over a year. I just had never shown uh, and I just stayed near the back and watched carefully and then slowly approached to ensure that the people I was about to throw my lot in weren't insane. And I was a little bit wrong there because they were insane, but they're the right kind of insane. They're the fun kind of insane. Uh, and I think it was Seven Wonders we played as our first game. And it was one of the first serious hobby board games I ever played. And it was just a great time. And I think that's the experience that you're going to hear from all of us on this episode and probably for you as well, that board games bring people together, it makes friends, and it kind of opens up new worlds that you wouldn't expect coming from a bunch of cardboard and paper and little plastic miniatures. Yeah, and, and of course, because I was brand new to the hobby, when we sat down to play Seven Wonders together, I just destroyed everyone. Of course, that's partially because of my innate bias towards science in general, so I just went straight science, and as always, science wins. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I hate it in those games where everybody's so busy, so into their own cards and collecting their own things. One person at the table collecting all those green cards, all those green cards. all, those. And all of a sudden we look up and we realize, oh, we're, we're screwed. We're in trouble. And that guy is Daniel. Now we know who to blame. Man. Science guy. 
But you can't you can't underestimate the power of meetup.com. Um I'm not plugging them or anything, but it, it just it was helpful to me in finding you guys. Um and I was uh, meeting at the um at that meetup that at that local uh, chain restaurant before Myriad opened up and before Myriad closed subsequently. But it it's such an easy way to find people board gaming in a community. Up until this point, really, I've spent decades playing board games with friends or playing it with my family. Or, um, But this was a great chance for me to reach out and meet a whole different circle of friends. And uh, it was a great tool in, in meeting you guys. I'm glad it was there. So let's go from there, Drew. Talk a little bit about your history of hobby board games. When did you first get involved? And... Uh... You know, what was your first your first gaming experiences like? Hey, as a toddler, <laughs> <laughs> we we played games as a family. Um, my brother, my parents, and I, and we played them all together. We had a, a game night, uh, sometimes two every week, and they were the classics. They were the basics, just what you'd expect. Our favorite game was Mealborn. Played that the most. The very first memory I have is of watching cribbage. Uh, watching my father or mother playing my grandfather in cribbage. And I can remember that game because they let me move the scoring pegs. That was the coolest thing in the world. You get to move these pegs around. And I've always been interested in pegboard games. There aren't a lot of them. Roll through the ages. I guess it's that feeling where you're going back to the womb. So I love those games where I can move pegs around the board. Um, That was my earliest memory. And... It was a regular thing. My brother and I would play constantly different games. We loved buying those big, we would buy those boxes of 50 variety games and we would play every single one and keep score. Um, So I had that background from the very beginning and it stayed with me. There have been times in my life where I haven't played as often, you know, gotten away from it. So there are big gaps in my experience, but I've never lost my love for it. How about you, Anthony? How did you get started into hobby board gaming? Uh, well, you know, I've been playing games most of my life. Uh, my parents had a nice collection of super old school games. Um, I actually played a lot of cribbage too when I was a kid. It's funny. Um, it's one of those games that we could actually play with our parents that nobody destroyed anybody by default. (laughs) So it was fun. Uh, the usual monopoly and all that, but mostly, um, you know, sometime in middle school, I think I got into different kinds of card games. So I played Magic the Gathering, of course, and the Star Wars CCG, which at the time was very big because the new movies were about to start coming out. Um, It's a horrible game, by the way, but I was really (laughs) obsessed with those cards. Um, And it was probably maybe college before I actually played my first hobby board game, but, you know, playing games all throughout. So I think it was... Some point in college, one of my friends from high school pinged me some random night. I think I was sitting at the computer playing a, a game of some sort, a video game. And she pinged me and said, hey, we could play this game called Settlers Catan online. You know, me and my friends have been playing it. Super trendy. Um, and so it was like 2003, maybe. And so it's been out for a while. But back then, the computer version of it was kind of hilariously bad. So to me, it was like this very archaic, um, almost underground type of thing i thought it was like super super hipster and maybe it was at the time i don't know but (laughs) that was my first experience with that and i was like oh this is cool you're actually interacting with other people um and it probably another five years before i actually played the uh 
bored version of that game <laughs> realized it was a you know looked significantly better than the web version um <laughs> as for actually gaming with people in a setting that is social uh the first time I actually did that was um, with you guys at Myriad Games that day they opened, and that was Revolution. So um, I'd been a part of that meetup group for a little while. I didn't actually realize the difference between you know hobby board games and everything else. So I uh, I was like, oh, you know, I was in my head. I'm thinking like Scrabble and stuff like that. I'm like, I guess I'll go because I just need to get out and do something. Um, and that was you know, a nice surprise. I think I walked in and they were playing Ticket to Ride and I was like, that looks interesting. And someone else was setting up um, maybe Small World and I was like, that looks interesting. And then Drew whipped out Revolution and Chris and uh, Chris and I sat down and played that a couple times. I was like, well, that was a lot of fun. What's next? Um, and then we played Flux. So, meh. But... <laughs> <laughs> we played Revolution twice so it offset the Flux and uh, I kept going back. And how about you, Daniel? You talked a little bit about Seven Wonders, but how'd you get involved in hobby board gaming? And I'm sure it has something to do with D&D. <laughs> um, not entirely incorrect. So, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the digital age, and most of my gaming growing up was digital. Uh, there were a few notable exceptions to this. Uh, Magic the Gathering, obviously, was a really big thing for me and my friends. My brother was into it when I was very young. He started collecting, I think, an alpha. Uh, and then when he quit... He gave me his old cards. My first pack of Magic the Gathering was Ice Age when I was, I think, five or six. Uh, a pack from the the big packs from the Ice Age set, uh, which I always liked. Uh, and so I played that for a few years with some of my friends and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon and all these creating card games. Um, and, and that's most of what I did up until college. Uh, and then in college, a couple things happened. One is I played a few, though not many, hobbies board games but the big thing is i started playing DD. and now i had read the books before and i played a few role-playing games uh, i had also played the warhammer games beforehand both a little bit of the role-playing and the tabletop stuff as well as mage knight when that was a thing do you guys remember when that was a thing that was a good game anyway the the proto hero click stuff it was great um so i got into DD with my friends and i have played just tons of RPGs since then because RPGs are really my favorite thing because they're so high interaction and so creative and so expansive. Uh, and in fact, one of the first role-playing games I really played in ended up running a single campaign for three and a half years where our characters went from level one to level 17. And we saw you know, from the lowest level to the gods. And that was such a great experience for me. Uh, and then I got introduced to hobby board gaming uh, more generally. I actually watched an episode of Tabletop. And before I met you guys, there was one board game I played, which was Small World, that I picked up from watching Tabletop. Uh, but I never really played very often until I finally gave in and went to go meet you, you know, meet the people at the meetup. Uh, and some strange people waved me over to their table. Uh, and then I played Seven Wonders with them. And then I think the next week you guys had me help you test out Relic Runners. Uh, and someone <laughs> rage quit that after I figured out how to just demolish everyone. And yeah, that's that's the story of how I got where I am. But definitely D&D is uh, the major part of my gaming heritage and probably the largest part of my gaming interest. Hmm. I've, I've dabbled in that. I mean, when, when it first came out, you know, basic, and then I did a little bit of the advanced, and it, it was fun. I enjoyed it, 
but it was an awful lot of hard work for everybody and i think we just sort of wandered away from it but it is a lot of fun if you stick with it you dabbled in magic true i dabbled saying? in no not magic the gathering <laughs> in D. <D&D. laughs> yeah i mean D and D is a great system. In undergrad, I actually ran a year-long psycho- uh, psychological survey to see if, or study rather, to see if we could elicit uh, moral growth or improvement in moral judgment from young adults by having them encounter ethical dilemmas in a Dungeons and Dragons world. Uh, the answer, unsurprisingly, for those of us who've played this sort of game, is yes. Um, you can encounter some very difficult questions there, and having to negotiate them uh, makes a big difference. And then I also just used to collect weird rule books for RPGs that I'll never play. I still kind of do that. Uh, and I just read through them for fun because the kind of systems for world building, it's kind of like a physics of its own, you know? I, you know what? I've got to be honest. Um, some people may have known this through, through my blog, but we, I'm holding on to John McCallion's collection of games. Uh, Robin King and John McCallion um, wrote game reviews. And they had a, if a big section of RPGs, the old, I mean, the Steve Jackson GURPS and all of that. And there's so many interesting historical um, role-playing games, the, the individual, you know, lone campaigns. And you're right. It's just fun to flip through them and read, get soak up the atmosphere and, and the characters and get lost. I'd love to play some of those historical RPGs. There's something. It's quite a collection. Maybe I'll have to break them out sometime and try them. Well, for me, board games have always been part of my childhood, and especially video games, growing up in the age of video games, always been very important. I would have to say, you know, gaming with a family is always the starting point, and I remember playing so many games as a kid, and when you know, you finally get involved in video games, the video game that really kind of caught my attention were real-time strategy games. The opportunity to build, you know, an army area control games to employ a strategy that was going to last several turns to think about tactics as things change on the moment it was always something that was really interesting to me i remember playing uh, command and conquer and uh, battle for middle earth 2 was actually probably my favorite rts but so many others including starcraft and warcraft i mean so much of my childhood hours were put into these games and uh, I really love strategy and love tactics, and it was so surprising to find such a love there. I mean, I had touched on Magic, I had touched on D&D over the years, but it was always that real-time video game Magic that really spoke to me. And later on, you know, when you get you know, more social and you're larger and larger groups, when I got to college, for some reason it was Risk. <laughs> and ah, Risk was the game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for some reason, we got a wide range of people to play Risk. And, you know, Risk is a little different than my early childhood days of um, crossbows and catapults. But, uh, yeah, we used to play Risk, and that was fun. I remember some great summer memories where you needed that dice roll. And if you could make that dice roll, you would win that territory. And my friend Charlo, he would stand on top of the uh, on top of his chair and throw the dice down, hoping that somehow that would add to his dice roll. And it was just, you know, I mean, risk for everything that it's not. It has some great moments to it, and it has some negotiation and some backstabbing, and it has great little miniatures, and some of the great early moments for board gaming. Beyond that, once I kind of got out, you know, out of college, the meetups, as Drew was saying earlier, played a very big part, and I got involved in some 
you know, geek-related gaming groups, and board games became a thing, and I got introduced to Munchkin, and Ascension, and Settlers, and Ticket to Ride, and all the basic classics, and some brand new games, and that kind of took over our group. We were we became, instead of this just being this movie and this other stuff group, we became a gamer group, and I was organizing meetups for board gamers, and turned out that Staten Island board gamers had their own meetup, and like Daniel, I kind of lurked for about a year, a year and a half, and eventually showed up to a meetup at Panera Bread and met Sherry, who was the organizer, and met Drew, and then obviously Anthony and Daniel that followed and became an organizer myself, which Drew was already one of them. And it was just a great opportunity to bring people to the table to play some great games, and the opportunity to play those real-time strategic tactics with real people right in front of you and to make that winning move to figure out some what someone else is thinking before they're even thinking it and to move your forces in or play the right card at the right time. It was such an exciting experience. And unlike most video games, most board games, even though they have some similar mechanics, tend to play very differently. You know, a ticket to ride is very different than a Settlers of Catan. Not to mention, you know, all the larger games like Rune Wars and, you know, Seven Wonders. These are very different games and you get a different feel and a different group of people. And it was just, it was such such a great experience and being able to engage so much of my gaming experience in one space was just so much fun. Now, that being said, you know, now that we talked a little bit about how we got into things, Drew... And I think this is kind of your topic, a little controversial here, but why don't you talk a little bit about your likes and dislikes with board games? Because I think the people really want to know, because, you, you know, you got some issues here. So why don't you they tell don't, us about them? They don't really want to know. They really want to know, <laughs> no. Drew. First of all, Drew, we Chris, don't want to know. <laughs> uh, you, you've heard them already. Um, yes, but I'll share them with everybody. But first of all, Chris, I got to tell you, you're a man after my own heart. Risk is is on my list of all time favorites. I'll explain why in a minute. Um, that's one of my likes. Um, okay, let me start with the dislikes. I'll try and keep this quick. I hate top ten that's lists. Right. Can I just get that out of the open right away? I hate them. I hate them. They're. Uh, I won't explain why. But let me just give you a very common sense reason why. If you have a list of let's say worker placement games that you want to recommend. Why 10? I mean, what if there are only eight really good ones? Then have a top eight. What if there are 12? If you have a 10, you're leaving off two of them. So pick a list and then pick a number that fits that list. 10, we're really, Western civilization is all caught up in the number 10, and we got to break that. That's another thing. I don't like marching in line with uh, you know i'm going nowhere i don't want to go with anywhere with this so cut this part i would say true just stick yeah. to your likes and dislikes with just game like well that was a dislike okay oh no, no, i'm just sorry like you're talking about you're talking okay. about podcasting related talk about like you know certain mechanics okay. certain themes you know talk about tolkien i think that's a really interesting subject that most people don't know. i know i have my list somewhere else but yeah um okay you can keep that if you want anyway um as far as games you know, I don't like Tolkien games. Let's face it. Um, I love Tolkien. I love reading Tolkien. I hate Tolkien movies for obvious reasons. <laughs> the Hobbit. Um, but I love the theme. I just don't like to see it in a board game. And the reason is uh, I'm 
so wrapped up in literature and the story and canon that I don't enjoy playing a game that that changes that. On the other hand, one of my likes is alternate history. So I love a game where you take history and change it. So I know it doesn't always make sense. I don't mind fiddling around with changing the course of history, but you change the course of Lord of the Rings and you're going to have a problem with me. I can't, I can't explain any more than that. Um, one of the likes I do have is theme. And I don't like it when theme is just tacked on willy nilly. To me, I look at a box and if the box appeals to me, you know, I want to try this game. You know, two of the games I pushed hard for it uh, when we first started podcasting together was uh, Lewis and Clark and the uh, Freedom, the Underground Railroad. Now, some of you guys may have had some problems with that, but with the games themselves, but the theme brought me in and got me excited. And it, to me, that improves the experience. So I'm a big theme monger. Is that what you want to call it? <laughs> Find a, you know, pick a good theme and, and I'll be there. I'll try it out. So that's just a, a, a short list of my likes and dislikes. Um, Anthony, how about you? Um, let's see. Dislikes. This is pretty easy. Uh, trick-taking games. Uh, any really kind of trick-taking game, except for Diamonds, which is pretty good. So basically, if there's a game in which I can sit and do nothing for 20 to 30 minutes while people still hand me cards... <laughs> I would like that game not to exist anymore. Um, there's too many of them. They're awful. Uh, and you might think, well, party games are kind of like that. But party games know what they are. And they they don't try to be more than they are. Trick-taking games are not games. So trick-taking games are bad. Um, the Let's see. What else don't I like? I feel like any... Euro that goes well beyond its means. Um, I don't like games that are complex for the sake of complexity. And that's it's a bit of a catch-22 because I like complex games because I like to solve the puzzle of it and figure out how to do it as efficiently as possible. But I don't like it if it's, you know, five hours long because the designer wanted to make a five-hour game. Um, it's a little too much for me. And my brain breaks about hour three or four. Um, I like games that are just long enough to feel satisfying, but not so long that I can't play two or three if I go hang out with people. Uh, so that that's a problem with that. Um, and then the last thing that drives me nuts in gaming is the, the zero-sum game. So Agricola, basically. Any game where you basically have to play to not die. Um, or if you can get negative points, uh, if the game is, and you know, cooperative games are a different thing. Like, that game's designed to beat you. That's fun. If the game, if you're playing against other players and the game, and you're going to lose more often than you win, it's a little too much for me. Um, that's the reason I do not like Agricola, but I do like Caverna, even though the mechanics are very, very similar. It's just, it's the outcome of the game. It's the mentality throughout the game. So that's where, I, you know, that's my take on that. I do not like that. On the like side, I do like anything where there's kind of a little puzzle to be solved. So anything with like an engine that you put together um, and you can kind of, especially if there's multiple ways to build that engine. Uh, Russian Railroads is one of my favorite games from last year, but it did start to get a little old after a few plays because the engine is relatively similar no matter how you do it. Um, different paths, but 
not too many variants there. Uh, if there's a way to make it replayable and fun and you can build that engine in a bunch of different ways, that's a lot of fun. It's one of the reasons I like worker placement games so much. Kind of, you know, they build out on each other's, on, on, they build out on themselves so well. I also like, I play a lot of solo games now, so I like games that have a huge amount of variety in the different ways that you can uh, lay them out. Um, Fantasy Flight's LCGs are awesome to me. Those games, extremely expandable, but not requiring all this ex extra uh, investment, like a game like Magic would. And you can play them as simply as or as, as complexly as you want. Uh, that kind of game is really cool, ignoring the part where it eats up your entire paycheck. <laughs> um, so that's that's pretty much, those are the kinds of things I like. I do not, I don't really get a ton of fun out of playing remotely on stuff. I've tried playing games online a few times, um, even video games. I'm not really big into the uh, you know MMO or online play against other players. I'd rather, if I'm going to play a game that's meant to be social, I'd rather sit down with people and hang out and play or play something by myself where I can kind of tweak it and optimize it as much as I want. And then obviously the games themselves don't matter as much, but obviously one of the things I like the most about gaming is miniatures uh, for the painting. Um, I do enjoy painting the miniatures, but <laughs> I have played very few of the games that I am currently painting. War of the Ring is one exception. I really like that game a lot, but most of the games I'm painting or that have miniatures to be painted, I don't get to the table all that much, but it's just so much fun to kind of turn that into my own special thing where I've customized it and personalized it to, to fit my desires uh, in the game rather than the kind of the bland gray plastic that they usually come in. So that's some of my likes and dislikes. Uh, Daniel, how how about you? Uh, all right. Well, so one thing I... I really don't like playing games alone, so I don't like solo play, and I don't like games that make me feel like I'm playing alone. So that's any game where there's, like, no interaction or where everyone's so worried about keeping track of the rules that they can't even talk to each other. Uh, so as a rule, as, as a guideline, I don't really like things with large, complicated rule books, which I know seems like it contradicts with my love of role-playing games. But the thing that really bothers me is when games get in the way of play if the rules to your game interfere with me playing I, I just don't want to do it and I just don't have patience for it and I will check out very quickly uh, so I really think that rule sets need to be cautious to sort of facilitate rather than interfere with play so I have a love of the efficient and a hate of the wasteful uh, I generally hate it when games have pieces and rules they introduce that do very little for overall gameplay. Uh, and if you listen to some of our episodes, you'll hear me complaining about, well, what the heck did that little piece do? Why did we have a whole piece to flip over once? That's just not a thing you need a piece for. So that's something that bothers me a lot. Uh, another thing I don't like, I don't like games that can be solved. So sort of counter Anthony there. I don't like it if there is a solution. Now, I don't mind if there are solutions, but they should always be relative to the way that everyone else is playing i don't like optimal paths i don't like any amount of imbalance i'm a little bit oversensitive to that sort of thing in fact uh and some people on board game geek have rightly called me out on that uh but i just don't like it if there is uh, a clear path forward a best move i don't like that i want it to be very much in the moment very much need to respond quickly and cleverly um, as far as my likes uh, I really like replayability by, 
by which I mean something like variability. So one of my favorite games there is going to be Betrayal at the House on the Hill, right? Very variable, lots of different endings. Uh, I like creativity. I like games that do some something that I'm familiar with a little bit differently. So like Gravwell does with its racing mechanics. Um, I like expansive and immersive narratives, if that's applicable. So when we get to role-playing games, right, I really like... I think D&D is actually one of the finest role-playing systems out there. But I'm also a big fan of the Apocalypse World system and its variants and the uh, Mouse Guard system. And simple, fun, and attractive games that I can play with friends. So I tend not to be a fan of games with fiddly bits or fiddly rules, which means, as a rule, I'm not as big a fan as Euros... Of Euro games as I am of, uh, I'm going to call them Americlash games because I hate the supposition that Ameritrash games are trash. I hate that sort of demeaning title because I think they are just as good, if not better, than Euros in a lot of cases. Uh, and probably my favorite moment in gaming is the aha, I got you, now my plan is revealed moment. I love to have that slowly building engine that you finally get to flip the switch on and then just go rocketing forward, right? I like that sudden clever play that turns things around. That's really where I thrive and what I enjoy most about gaming, I think. So, Chris, how about you? Well, I think it's been an interesting journey, and I think that's the one great thing about board games is that while you will see some mechanics, while you will see some themes pop up, up again, typically every game offers a new experience. Now, there are things that I have found along this path that have been a rock in my shoe <laughs> and some things that I've really absolutely positively enjoyed. And I remember when Daniel and I were talking about our top 50 games of all time, and it was such a diversity of as... Daniel say like a merit, you know, clash or a merit, you know, meritive type of games and Euro games and some light games and, you know, maybe a party game once in a while. But I think, you know, if I coalesce all that and try to figure out what it is that I don't like, and I guess that's the way we kind of should start, is for me, I don't like games that don't need me to play them. So one of our famous burn reviews was Parade a game in which the cards are laid out in front of you and there's only really one good solution. And you just make that one good solution choice each and every time and there's really nothing else to do. And it kind of felt like I didn't need to be there to play the game. So I would say games that have a simple one solution, one tactic to take, really isn't a game for me. I don't really need to be there. And I kind of get bored with those type of games. I really want to be challenged. I want to be thinking about strategy i want to think about the tactics i wonder wondering what each player is doing so if a game is too simplistic that's going to be a problem for me now that's not to say that a simple game isn't fun i mean love letter is a very simple game but yet a lot of fun so there are just some games that just don't you know reach the level of true gamer interaction and when there's nothing to do, as Anthony was saying, whether it's not doing anything that turn or just not really doing anything in the game whatsoever, it really hurts. Because <laughs> you're sitting there for, whether it's five minutes or five hours, it's just something that is really not fun and it really doesn't bring the experience up. So I would say that's one of the things that just really bugs me too. I would also have to say that narrative and theme are very important to me. So... Right off the bat, I do love these narratives or 
Ameritrash type of games, and I and I really find something so interesting about having a theme play out in a game. Now, don't get me wrong, if it's just theme, it's not enough for me personally. What I really like about a theme in a game is when a game plays out logically. Like, oh, of course, the first thing I do is get to the car and then turn the car on and then drive this way. I shouldn't have to keep looking at the rule book. So if a game has a solid narrative, a solid theme to it, it should make sense each and every step that I take what the next step to take is. And I shouldn't have to go to the rule book. And I think as Daniel was saying, like there's like this random mechanic that you have to do each and every turn that doesn't really play in with the rest of it. So theme is good for all the color, all the artwork. I love great artwork. I love great components and great pieces. Um, not as far along the line as far as painting is concerned where Anthony's at, but I always want great components. I always want great artwork. I want a great theme, whether it's the pictures and the feel of the game and the universe in which it's in, or how it just kind of takes you along a path, even if it's a Euro. And I got to say, that's the thing about Euros too. You know, every time that I kind of see a brand new Euro, I'm always intimidated. I look at this game and I look at all the pieces and I look at like the 12 page rule book and I'm like, ah, yeah, I'm never going to be able to get through this. And it's going to be difficult, and it's too hard, and it's too smart for me. And honestly, there's nothing better, you know, as far as a gaming experience is concerned, when you tackle a big game, and you come out, and you've learned something, and you've experienced something, and especially when you get to build an engine. The opportunity to build this engine, whether it's a, a tableau building, or card selection, and a hand management kind of mechanic or you know, you're building an area control situation where you're protecting your troops on one side and you're building a force on another side and you have these special units ready. You know, the opportunity for a Euro to kind of educate you and expand your mind and open you up to new worlds is so very interesting. I love Euros. The heavier the better, the longer the better. You know, whether it's a Twilight Imperium or it's something a little lighter like uh, you know, a Bruges or it's a Caverna or Agricola. I don't mind the heavy kind of Euro as long as what you're doing makes sense in that little tiny universe that they set up. So pretty much as far as that's concerned, those are tends to be my favorites. You know, it can be an Ameritrash, it can be a Euro, um, but as long as it's a good game, as long as it has good mechanics, and I definitely do favor the tableau building the car drafting and the area control type of mechanics. So that's pretty much an overview, but let's stop talking about overviews. Hey, Drew, <laughs> what are your, you know, a couple of your favorite games? Well, it's actually another way of showing some of my likes. Um, I mentioned Risk before, so that's one of my top games. Because I grew up playing the classics and play them over and over and over and over again. And the way to keep a, a very basic classic game from getting worn out and tired is to change the rules. Risk was always a fantastic game because it was so simple that you could easily change the rules, throw in a house rules, create a variant. I mean, we were creating variants long before the publishers came out with all these different variations of risk it was just that easy to do and so nowadays with all the the modern games 
I enjoy creating risk mashups. So risk takes on a whole new dimension because you can combine it with so many interesting games. Um, my favorite is Ticket to Ride and combining that with risk. And I created a mashup called Ticket to Risk. So that's how much I love risk is I'll keep playing it. <laughs> Uh, another game that I enjoy, we've talked about Revolution. To me, that was a gateway game to Dominaire, part of AEG's uh, Tempest World um, series. Dominaire has it all to me. It has variable player powers and uh, card drafting and uh, worker placement and area control. And it just like takes every single mechanic you can think of and Blends them all beautifully. I, I always enjoy that. And Chris, you, I, I enjoy playing with you because you know my strengths and um, you know how to test me, I'll tell you. Um, and the other game that I like that I wanted to mention, you've heard this on the podcast a couple times, with D-Mocker. At one point, it was um, like the Holy Grail. I, I could never get my hands on a copy, but John McCallion's collection had a copy so uh, with his permission, I was able to get it out and play it, bring it to the table, and had a grand time because it forces you to continually look ahead. It's not a strictly linear game. You have to look three rounds ahead. The decision you make now may be optimal for this round, but it may make life difficult for you down the road. So you're, you're constantly trying to, to optimize your position and yet pave the way for victory down the road um, a, a beautifully. Uh, balanced game in my mind, D-Mocker. And that's probably my top three games at this point. Anthony, I'd love to know what your top games are. I, I don't really have like a top list yet. I'm working on one. Um, but there, there are certain games that kind of pop to the top more often than not, games that I would like to play more, <laughs> if I could get them to the table more often. They, I feel it kind of represent the kind of games that I generally like. One that I really like and would play pretty much anytime anybody pulled out and even played um, on a recent flight I was on from Houston. And when I fly, I'm medicated. So I played this game for a solid like three hours <laughs> of medicated. And that was Suburbia. Um, this is one of my favorite games for a number of reasons. And I have yet to play the new version or I guess the, the new game that's kind of like this, um, Castles of Mad King Ludwig. But... Suburbia itself is just an awesome game for a number of reasons. You know, the complexity that's there is not vital to play the game. It's, it's vital to be good at the game, but it's not vital to play the game. Um, but you're constantly building an engine and trying to figure out what's going to affect what, and the tiles that come out are different, so you never really know um, what options are going to be there, and you can affect the other players around you by what you buy, and the expansions are awesome thus far. So that's a game I always have fun with. That's the kind of game I'd always have fun with. It kind of falls in that perfect 90-minute time frame, too, for length of a game. Another game I really, really like, and I wish I got to play more, is Mice and Mystics. And I'm going to pair this one up with Imperial Assault, because Imperial Assault is kind of the same type of game, but significantly more complicated and about Star Wars. So that makes it technically better on paper, though I have not played it nearly as much. So I'm going to pair them together for now. But Mice and Mystics is an awesome game that I've never had a bad time playing and that I'm extremely excited to have kind of on standby for it as my children get older, because I know they're going to love it too. So that's a fun one. You know, other miniature games, also awesome. War of the Ring, that was one of the 
most fun gaming experiences I've had is playing through that for the first time with Chris. That was an epic game. And it's, I can't imagine any playthrough of that not being epic like that. Other games I really like and would play over and over again. Kind of the shorter carry around with you, but not down to that micro level of game. Uh, San Juan, The Duke. Those are two games that I would play over and over and over again. Just high, high replayability. And there's a certain amount of luck involved, but just enough skill. And they're super easy to teach, which makes them awesome. So, And I like two-player games. I like games that I can sit down and play with my wife, or hopefully in a few years, my son. So those, if it's well done and easy to teach and quick to play and even more fun to play a second time through, uh, that's the kind of game I like. Love Letter is awesome, but it's a bit too micro to fit that. So those are a little heavier, and I like that. So those are some of the games I like. Maybe not you know, the top five or six on my top 50, which I've, I did actually start one and I haven't finished it yet, but I've been, you know, battling with where I'm going to put various games because there's the issue of best game or game I like the most. So how do you kind of compare the two? Hmm. Um, Yeah. But working on that, how about you, Daniel? What are the, you know, what kind of games would you say top your list, either side of that list? Uh, Yeah, so... Looking over at my collection right now the, uh, and trying to isolate sort of the beating heart, the games I would tell you to buy to have a complete collection. And the ones that come to mind immediately are Betrayal at the House on the Hill, which I think is just one of the best games that's been released in a long time. It's amazingly replayable. It's amazingly flexible. And it, it has a great tendency to surprise you. Uh, so that's that's one of my top games. Alongside that is the DC deck building game, which is a game that every single time I brought it to Miri, it got brought out and played several times to the point that when I got sick of it, I had to stop bringing it so people wouldn't ask me to play. Uh, It's a fantastic game. It's a very quick deck builder, and I think one of the best deck builders out there, actually. And I will defend that claim, even though I know it's contentious. Um, uh, On top of that... My very favorite racing game, and I think the best racing game in existence, is Gravwell. It doesn't get enough attention. I have spoken about it so many times on this podcast that I'm afraid the designer may think I'm stalking him. But I'm just a really big fan of this game, and I think it is an absolute essential, and it's a shame that people haven't paid more attention to it. Uh, And the last thing I'd put in that group of essentials is Flashpoint. And I know it's a little bit contentious to... take pandemic out of the running as or out of the place as the like the go-to cooperative game but i think flashpoint is more charismatic it's more flexible uh it, it moves more easily from very easy to very difficult there's all these new maps you can buy the art is gorgeous it's just one of the best games out there uh now if i get to add to those like my my peripheral games that i'd say you should have i love these games just about as much the issue here, though, is just that I don't think they're as absolutely essential to a good collection. Um, I like Bonanza a lot, and I'm the only person I know who likes Bonanza a lot. So, you know, there's that. It's a fun game. It's the most fun you'll ever have counting beans. Ha ha ha. Uh, I've used that pun a thousand times. Uh, I like Defenders of the Realm a lot for, you know, a more complex co-op experience. And I should have noted when I did my likes that I do really like co-op games, a good co-op game. Uh, and at least at the moment, so those are my, my biggest board games and and also to sort of second what Anthony said about San Juan there, Uh, as far as role-playing games go, because that's sort of 
becoming my thing. You know, I'm going to talk about that a bit too. Uh, I've played a lot of different role-playing games. I've played the Apocalypse World games. They're great. Uh, I really like Luke Crane's Mouse Guard. I think D&D 5.0, this current edition of Dungeons & Dragons, is the finest role-playing game on the market. Uh, and I don't think that's terribly surprising in the sense that they have the most market presence, right? They are the go-to role-playing game in, in at least the cultural imagination. But this new edition has slimmed down and become so much more efficient and so much better at facilitating play without getting hooked up in the minutia of the rules like the last editions did. Uh, it really is truly remarkable, and I'd suggest everyone who's ever liked a role-playing game pick up a copy of the Player's Handbook. Uh, so that's me. How about you, Chris? Well, as you were saying, there's a lot of games to play, and sometimes, as Anthony was saying, sometimes it's the best games and sometimes it's the games that you most like to play even though they may not be the best games of all time so for me there's a lot of things to talk about and check out our episode number 50 for mine daniel's like top 50 board games of all time but we completely reserved the right to revise that at any time and to throw it upside down or throw it out the window and start all over again but nonetheless our top 50 games of all time so some of the games, things that I like about gaming that didn't get a chance to talk about was the meta of a game. You know, the opportunity to build a strategy, to build a team, to build an army based upon their special abilities, their tactics, their unit powers. So for that, the Star Trek Attack Wing probably is the best example of putting together a meta, putting fielding a team in that miniatures type of way and then letting it go wild and see what you can do with that. So, you know, that's a part of gaming that we often don't talk about, the stuff that happens before you get to the table. And I just experienced so much of that fun community building, what's a good card, what matches up with this. If I, if I play into this scenario, if this situation happens, I'll use this card, and then this one will... Just long before you get to a game... Having an opportunity to put together a meta is just so much fun. If you haven't put together, you know, uh, an army, a battle group, a, a team, whatever it is, in advance, you're really missing out because there's so much fun there. You know, days and weeks of just kind of figuring out how everything goes together and, you know, trying to reach a certain cap limit. Oh, man, that is so much incredible fun. Now, as Daniel said, Defenders of the Realm. Now, for me, Defenders of the Realm is kind of like the perfect combination of a Euro game in the pandemic type of mechanic with an Ameritrash game where you're rolling dice, you have these asymmetrical powers, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, and yet it's a co-op game that doesn't have really an alpha player because you have to roll your own dice, you get to do your own thing, and it's just at those times where you can't wait any longer do you call all the adventurers back to stop the big bosses from attacking the city. So... Defenders of the Realm probably still is my number one favorite game of all time, even though I'm not a big co-op game person, just because, I don't know, sometimes you get the alpha gamer, sometimes the game is too simple, sometimes the game is too formulaic, but Defenders of the Realm kind of, you know, burst that bubble a little bit. Now, on the asymmetrical power thing, I really love stepping into a game, being handed a character, or a unit, or a country, whatever it is, and have a special power or a set of powers that is unique to me. And sometimes, even if it's not truly balanced, although that's a little bit odd, but 
even if it's not truly balanced, I love to have a starting point that I have to work from, even if it means overcoming, you know, a weak point to my game, that's okay. I mean, when I got the chance to play the Game of Thrones, the board game, and I got to play the Greyjoys, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm kind of surrounded. I'm off here on this island. What am I going to do? But that's the fun part, being able to figure out what to do, how to dig yourself out of that hole is so much incredible fun. It's it's a great opportunity. One of the best games for that, I would have to say, is Small World. This is a little bit more cutesy, but it's based on Vinci, a very strong kind of Euro game. It's a and and it's got a good kind of heritage there. You're picking a race with a special ability, and then you're playing out that race, and then when it goes into decline, you're picking another race. So you get to play different special abilities, different races over and over again in a game and that's just outstanding fun now on the euro side there are so many great euros it's kind of hard to say which one is my favorite because they all do such great things um stefan feld is probably my favorite euro designer just because so many of his so many of his games are dynamic interesting and bring so many people to the table probably in that area bruges is probably my favorite stefan feld game because I love tableau building. I love to build a tableau. I love to build a machine and see it go. And having the opportunity to put the people in town and see how the special abilities chain together, how they snowball together, that is so much fun. Being able to put the right pieces in the machine to make everything work out. Now, I can't talk about board games and especially Euro games without talking about Caverna and Agricola. Now, I'm going to say this about Agricola. Even though I like Caverna better and I like building that tableau better, there is something about Agricola where you basically have your hand on your throat the entire game because if you make that one mistake, everything falls apart. I don't think in a Euro game or in a board game I've ever really experienced that up that extreme tension each and every turn of whether or not I was going to be able to feed my family. So Agricola does something very unique for a interesting way. And once again, as I talked about earlier, it's a Euro game that has theme. It makes sense that you have to prepare the field, plant the crops, harvest the crops. Makes a lot of sense. So as far as that's concerned, all the Euros are in one big bucket, and I love them all. And as Anthony said, Suburbia is such a great one. Love that game. And there's just so many of them. I I could literally spend hours just talking about all my favorite games. But Euros in one side, Small World in another, Defenders of the Realm there, and any type of meta, Star Trek Attack Wing or any other, is just such a great time. Now that we talked about our favorite likes and dislikes, our favorite games, why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, when this mic is off and we go on to our regular lives and we, we aren't at the table, what are you doing? So, Drew, once this podcast is over... What goes on in your life? Oh, I sleep. <laughs> I get a chance to catch up on sleep. No, um, I've actually bounced around from a lot of different. Uh, I love temp work and uh, little odd jobs I create for myself. I've done mystery shopping. I enjoy doing that. Um, dropping in on the occasional focus group from time to time is a lot of fun. I temp work in uh, office uh, settings. And uh, I also created an eBay store for myself. So I have a lot of fun with that. It's fun going to auctions and thrift shops. I used to sell board games until we uh, 
uh, took on John McCallion's collection. So now I'm holding on to all our games because <laughs> I see the value of it. But um, I, I used to love thrift shopping for that. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I sell T-shirts with cool uh, logos on it, vintage stuff. Um, I love looking, finding old magazines. Um, a lot of things can be turned into cash on eBay, but it's the discovery, which is, to me, more fun than the selling. Um, and that's that's one of my pleasures when I'm away from the microphone. Um, Anthony, I'd love to hear about your day. My background's in writing, so I've been writing for you know 10 years. I went to school and studied writing and you know, came out and thought I was going to be a big, famous writer. And uh, then quickly found out that the the best way to make a living if you want to write is online because there are billions and billions and billions of words. So I've been working with digital media and digital marketing for almost a decade now. Um, That's what I do now. I work for an agency in Manhattan. um, And basically we just, we manage digital marketing accounts for our clients um, so st- something like a podcast, you know, it's kind of a natural fit for me when I try to figure out how to do something fun with a, a hobby of mine. Usually one of the first things I think of is something online, build a website, record something, promote it, go on social media, you know, just the stuff I know, you know, been doing for so long. Um, then of course the rest of my day, um, <laughs> the other 16 hours, I, I do have two children, uh, the second of which was just born a couple months ago. She's uh, six weeks old tomorrow, so as of recording this. So she's as demanding as any six-week-old baby is, um, but it's fantastic. So that's, I mean, all of my energy goes into to those kids and to my wife, to my family. Um, this is a fun hobby. This is something I get to do to unwind and hang out with my friends. Um, which is much, much needed if you have kids, you know what I mean? Um, but that's, that is the focus of my life at the moment. And, you know, work is fun as well. That's how I get to, you know, obviously it's work, but it's, it's, I try to work and, you know, do something that is as entertaining and as, you know, works the mind and gives me a chance to do what I, what I know how to do and what I love best. And that's being creative and coming up with new ways and exciting ways to, uh, um, build content and promote it. So as we do with the podcast, Daniel, what about you, man? Uh, well, when I'm not overthinking games, I'm overthinking everything else. Uh, I am a professional philosopher, which means that I, I teach philosophy at a college here in the, in New York city. Uh, and I'm currently finishing up my doctorate, my PhD in philosophy. Uh, and so that defines a great deal of my life being in grad school and being an academic uh, and I really am just an academic through and through, so I'm pretty much always reading or studying something. And when I'm not doing that, I you know I go running a lot. I've gotten pretty big in that recently, but it keeps snowing up here. I want to point out that when we said from Staten Island earlier, that is not true. I am from South Carolina. <laughs> I just live in Staten Island. And I am from South Carolina, which all of you from Dixie will know is both a great point of pride and shame. Um but yeah, so most of my life is characterized by, you know, working through papers for grad school, uh, writing my dissertation, uh, reading a couple of books, working on various research projects. These lines have started to cross because I've started to look at uh, some of my research uh, towards gaming in general. So I've started looking at the psychological, anthropological, and cultural significance of play and games. 
which has been very fun because it's not very, very well explored. But I don't know. Maybe I'm uh, dipping my pen in the company ink here or <laughs> mixing uh, pleasure and work in a dangerous way. I guess we'll see. Yeah, so that's me. I, I, I think too much just pretty much all the time. Uh, Chris, how about you? Well, Daniel, I guess I'll have to join you there because I think too much as well. Completing my doctorate in psychology and in a very fancy way of saying existential phenomenological philosophical psychology, my my field of study is psychology and counseling generally with a concentration on human development. And in particular, the idea is to be able to serve people, to serve the community. I've worked in a lot of nonprofits. I work in a college and you know, to be able to help people's careers, their academic development, their personal development, their spiritual development, and to take a look and use philosophy in meaningful ways to help grow and support our community. So one of the great things about board gaming is being able to connect to all those people out there and expose them to new and innovative ideas and to show them that they have the capacity to do such great things. So whether it's my board game life, my professional life, or my life with my family and my friends, it's all about how we can serve each other and you know build a, a bigger and better community both for the world but for ourselves individually. So um, it's been a great hobby and it's great to podcast and great to reach out to each and every one of you out there. And as always, I hope that you do join us at the table at some point really soon. You know, I have to interject here. You, you mentioned. You yeah, I have to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think our listeners are aware of something you mentioned at the table. It used to be that the four of us would get together at the table quite often um, because at one point we were all in Staten Island. And yes. I thought, uh, Daniel, it's ironic you, you bring that out. Um, you're, you're a South Carolina boy, but currently you are the only person residing in Staten Island at this time. Um, where's everybody else? Well, I don't want to say it because then Chris is just going to say it. Chris is going to have to say what? He's going to say it. Say what? Brooklyn. Brooklyn! They They left me behind in Staten Island when all of them moved out. I stuck around here so I could hang out with them, and they all left me. Dude, I'm right over the bridge, man. I'm right over the bridge. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm going to be coming over to Brooklyn in not too long, probably. We'll see. (laughs) It's better over here. It's a world away. I am currently in Bennington, Vermont. Just moved up to the frozen north. And Chris, where did you sneak off to? Shh. Daniel will find out. (laughs) (laughs) While Daniel was gone for a very, very long time, leaving me alone in, in Staten Island, I moved up to New Jersey, so I'm actually in Rutherford, New Jersey, and the Bergen County area, and uh, still have roots in Staten Island, but born and raised in, come on, Anthony, come on. Brooklyn. Brooklyn! (laughs) (laughs) Which will, you know, his first daughter's word will be Brooklyn, I'm sure, at some point. (laughs) Both my kids were born here, so. But Anthony, but Anthony is from? Seattle. Seattle. Oh, I like how you Seattle. asked that. You're like, yeah, Seattle. Seattle. <laughs> we need to give. I know where you're of, going with this, and I don't. We need to talk give comfort it. to Anthony. I don't right want to talk about it, Drew. Oh, oh. Speaking of games, oh, that did not go well. Drew, uh, Drew, <laughs> you got to bring that up. Okay, Chris, what's next? <laughs> Moving if, on. If it makes you feel. 
feel better, Anthony. We don't even have an NFL team in South Carolina. We have none. The closest is in North Carolina. The Car- we like we share the Carolina Panthers. We're so, like, so basically, you're like Anthony's team, right? <laughs> well, Carolina was in the playoffs, weren't they? Yeah, Carolina was. Wow. Yeah. No. yeah. They got beat by my team. Yeah. Ah. I don't know bastards. how the hell that happened. All right. <clears throat> well, that being said, let's talk about the future of BGA. What do each and every one of you guys would like to see in the future for the podcast, for gamers, and for you? Drew? Well, first of all, we all have to have a child who has the letters BGA in their name. Anthony's already one up on us with Abigail, so now we have to keep up with him. Well, in a certain way, we do have to grow out our, our family. Uh, we're looking forward to growing the, the Board Gamers Anonymous family in the near future, maybe adding a person or two to the team, hoping to uh, share some of the games that, I've, that I'm holding on to for John McCallion um, to play, with, play some of those older classic games, to learn more about them and, and how they, they relate to the games that are, that are coming out now, the new games. Um, I love the fact that we always talk about a game's context, and so I want to I want to get more into that—the context of this whole world of gaming—and it might help me understand, uh, prepare me for the new games that are coming out. That's just some of the things uh, I, I want to be able to use this great two thousand game collection of John's in in certain ways, and uh, maybe we'll do that through our. Um, uh, support and association of Double Exposure, who creates uh, four annual, um, was it four conventions a year in New Jersey? So maybe uh, put the, put some of those games to use uh, in a, a tournament or some sort of program at one of their conventions. We shall see. Uh, we'll talk about some of those ideas in the weeks ahead. So, Anthony, uh, what do you see uh, the future BGA? Oh man. So I've been the last year and a half I was, you know, I would record it and I would edit it and that would eat up not eat up because I enjoyed it. I actually had a lot of fun doing it. Um but it used up, you know, most of the free time I had available to work on the podcast. So because of my extended absence when my daughter was born, Chris kind of took over that part and he's going to continue working on that so it's going to free me up to work on all the laundry list of cool stuff I had written down to work on for the website. Um some marketing stuff, just some cool things that I've wanted to do for a while and just there hasn't been time to do it. Um, so you should see a lot more activity from us on social media and, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all those. Those should be a lot more content on the website soon. We, you know, breaking out a lot of that. Uh, you can find our podcast now on Board Game Geek, the new Dice Tower website that should be launching sometime this year. We have content on there as well. That's something I'm going to be keeping updated regularly. Uh, so lots of cool stuff like that. Uh, there's a lot of it's t- little stuff that wouldn't even seem like a huge deal, but it's stuff that gets me excited. My little uh, um, marketing nerd inside me. <laughs> stuff I just wanted to get out there. Um, but there'll be more of it. and you know, Upgrades to the website. Um, in- improvements in the way the content is presented and published. Um, not the content itself necessarily although i'm sure you know chris has already done some awesome stuff with that but just the way we get it out there and promote it uh, and then of course this year we're planning on getting out and going to conventions and meeting people and being more engaged with the community so that's something i'm really excited for it's not something we were able to do last year 
And it's, you know, before this year even started, I kind of put it on my calendar and started scheduling and planning around that to make sure we could make it part of this year. So I'm excited for that too. What about you, Daniel? Oh, there are two really big things for me. And uh, the first of which is I really want to uh, step up with the conversations we've been having with the the folks over at NYU Game Center. And there, there's a great game design center over at NYU, that, and it's in, uh, it's in Brooklyn. Brooklyn! Okay, I thought there was a shtick there, but I guess I was wrong. Anyway, uh, so there's a great design center over in Brooklyn, and uh, as I've started doing some research in that area... And there's some possibility of a sort of collaborating in some ways that uh, might be really interesting, at least getting to hang out with, with the really talented people uh, who are involved uh, with the project over there and right? who are involved with teaching over there. And the students are all really great. And I've seen some of the work they've done. And it's really fantastic. Uh, the other big thing I want to do is I want to get a dedicated line of role playing game material go- going. And I think what we're going to do there is I've. I've got a homebrew campaign world that I am almost done with for D&D 5.0. I think another month or so of polishing. This is where you find out what an academics version of quote-unquote almost done is uh, another month or so. Uh, but I think it'd be really exciting to have that sort of line of content running. It'd give us more to talk about, and it really is where my heart is, that sort of deep, immersive, long campaign, multiple-year true epic in a Dungeons and Dragons world. Uh, and and so that's something I really like to do. How about you, Chris? Well, I have to say that the podcast has really brought about interesting and unexpected types of experiences. Probably first off, the response from all the listeners that listen to the podcast. You know, when Anthony and I first started, we were just like, oh, we'll do this and it'll be fun and we'll kind of reach out to some people and hopefully... You know, it'll help the game store that we were going to and maybe bring some new people into the hobby. And, you know, we've been expanding exponentially. We keep looking at the download numbers and we're just like, wow, this is great. More people listening. More people are getting out to gaming. And we're so very thankful for that. Probably most importantly would have to be the Extra Life events that we've done, bringing new people into the hobby, but especially being able to serve children in need. That's been a really nice um, aspect of the podcast and we'd like to thank each and every one of you who've donated to Children's Miracle Network as part of the Extra Life events that we've had and that we will continue to do in the future. We want to make this podcast about the art community, about you the listener, and about doing service to help other gamers in need and the Extra Life experience has been such a big part of it. As far as like the technical stuff with the podcast, just doing a podcast for people who've never done a podcast, at least I have never done a podcast before, was such an interesting experience. There was some elements to it that I had thought about, you know, in the past. I mean, anybody who watches anime at any level, you're like, I could do that voice acting. That would be great if I could do that. To have a microphone in front of me and to be able to do my radio announcer voice is just really fun and interesting. Being able to pick up Kicking the Habit when uh, Daniel had started that and being able to use it as a consumer reports type of platform to let people know about what's great in Kickstarter and what you should avoid was a lot of fun too. And as Anthony said just recently, I think about five or six episodes that I was able to edit, you know, that was such an interesting experience too because I'd never edited audio before for a podcast. And kind of got thrown in the deep end. It was like, okay, so we do this, and somehow it's it works. 
and uh, thankfully it worked. <laughs> so being able to edit the podcast, to create bumpers for our different segments, to create fun and interesting content each and every week, to come up with new and interesting ideas for board gaming, to help expand the industry, to get designers' names out there so they would be just like you know baseball players. You'll know a Reiner Knizia just like you will know you know any great player out there and it's just an outstanding opportunity to speak to the listeners speak to the designers speak to the producers and the board game publishers because they're a really kind of intimate part of this small family that we all enjoy spending time together as far as the future is concerned i am really looking forward to going out to origins and Gen Con and attending our first huge conventions. As Drew was saying and, and uh, Daniel, being able to expand to NYU, being able to expand to local conventions, being able to meet listeners, play new games, have these great experiences, and just be open to whatever's coming next. I never expected to be doing all of these things right now, so I can't imagine what's coming right around the corner. Well, that's everything for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We really enjoyed the opportunity to reach out to each and every one of you each and every week. We hope that you enjoyed our episode zero, our origin stories, how we kind of came together as BGA, how we're going to work together in the future, and hopefully get a chance to meet each and every one of you out there. But that's not the end of the story. Each and every listener out there is part of our podcast. You're part of our family. It's very important for us that we hear from you. We would love to know your gaming stories, what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear in the future. Our social media network is not just there for likes and clicks, but for communication. We really want you to interact and be part of us. So, Anthony, if they wanted to go ahead and they wanted to connect with us in one of our thousand different ways, how would they go about that and where would they look? Well, Chris, since you asked... There are many ways to connect with BGA. The easiest is really wherever you happen to be. We are on Twitter, at BGA Podcast. We are on Facebook. Just search for Board Gamers Anonymous. We are on Board Game Geek. Look for us there in our guild. Um, The podcast is also listed there separately, so you can see each episode on Board Game Geek. We have our own website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. Every episode is posted there, along with regular blog posts and updates Um, The show notes tend to be a little bit longer and have a little more detail to them there, so you can read a little bit more about what we're talking about that week. And we are also on Patreon. We launched that a couple weeks ago. So if you want to see some of the cool stuff we have planned for the future, or if you just want to help out and kind of support what we're doing and help us pay for the equipment and all the extra stuff that we want to put together to keep the quality and the regular weekly updates going, that's where you can do it. we are, we're everywhere. You know, if you, if you have a telegraph in your basement, I will Morse code you. Um, just tap away. We could, we'll say hi. Just, just hop online. You will find us. The telegraph thing is actually, that's not a bad social media. Why, why we haven't been using that? That's what I'm saying, man. There's lines all over the world. Jeez, man. You're supposed to be our social media guy. Why don't we, why aren't we up on the telegraph? I got to learn Morse code real quick. <sighs> Dot, dot, dash, dash, dot, dot, BGA, man. Come on. (laughs) I I prefer the summoning conk. Board Game Bears Anonymous Assemble! (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Daniel, we're right here. We've been standing next to you the whole time. Oh, um, well then. That's <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> right, until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And we will always save you a seat at the table. Thank you.